30th anniversary. You talk about grace and God. Uh, Susie did not know, and I didn't know. Uh, you know, you don't know you're raised by wolves until you get married and you re- the other person realizes that you're crazy. That all happens, you know, and then by God's grace and his mercy and a whole lot of forgiveness and effort and all those things. So, I mean, I can't imagine 30 years later being uh, so blessed and that we're on this side of 30 years. I don't feel like I'm old enough to be married 30 years, to be quite honest with you. Uh, but we have a couple other people. I'm trying to remember. Uh, it was at least, oh, we have an 18th anniversary for Russ. Where are those guys? Would you guys stand? I can, 18 years of love. We're so pleased. <laughs> All right, and then you can stay standing. And then, are there other, uh, uh, at the 8 o'clock, because I'm not here now, but are there anyone else, someone else, was 30 years, but it's tomorrow, I think. Was there, I mean, we're going to pray for you guys. Oh, Joe and, and, and um, Mary, 30 years tomorrow. But, n- not beating all the records in the church, but one big record in the church is Dee Dee and Don are hitting 50 next week. Now, I try to figure out how that is. Don said he's only 53, so I don't know. I assumed that you were born in India and you were promised... Now, I hear this rumor that when you saw her, you began to sing in your heart, pretty woman. Now, I would have thought it would be joyful, joyful, or some Christian hymn, but apparently, 50 years ago, he was not as good a Christian as he is today, and he was singing, who, who sang that song? Yeah, not a Christian, we're not even going to go there. So, would you guys come, we want to pray, and they're going to renew their vows up in Tennessee, I believe, at the same church with the same friends, right? Oh, North Carolina. Isn't that incredible? Uh, I'm going to pray to bless them, but if you'd like to come, assuming that they'll let you, uh, if you come and you'd like to put your hands on, we want to bless. 50 years is not a little thing. I thought I was doing good until, you know, Don's always one-upping me. I'm like, 30 years. Well, I've married 50 years, so please come sit here. here. Look towards me, and I'm going to get the oil real quick. Uh, It is there. It is there. It's my oil, so... We're going to hear you. Dee Dee asked for a short exorcism, but I'm not going to do that this morning. For Dawn, that was her gift. Lord, we love you. and What an amazing thing. Such wonderful people, Lord. We just love them. They're so much fun. and uh, Lord, their hearts are to serve so many. And Lord, they've been faithful in your service for us such a long time. But we're so grateful for their marriage. Uh, Lord, for the things that they've been through, all the good days and the tough days and the ministry and the churches and Lord, I'm sure it wasn't easy. And yet, Lord, uh, they have been a light in their generation, and they're a light to us. Uh, and Lord, uh, a model to Susan and I into so many years, we see, uh, Lord, their love and their friendship. And Lord, we want to be like that. Uh, Lord, thank you for their good example. Uh, Lord, let them press on further and further. Uh, thank you for the way they keep growing. What a legacy to their children. Would you bless their children and their grandchildren, Lord? And would this next 20 years be more satisfying than ever by the Spirit, Lord? Oh, I pray, Lord, you surprise them with prayers they've prayed for years that would be answered, Lord, in this next time, this next season, uh, that the fruitfulness of their lives would be expanded and enlarged. We ask these things in the most wonderful, the most precious name, the name of Jesus. Amen. We sure love you. God bless you.
I'll give you a hug without stabbing you with the microphone. There you go. Okay. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. This morning is Epiph... Well, tomorrow is Epiphany. So this is 12th night. This is the 12th day of Christmas. Uh, the church here moves... Uh, from the celebration, the Feast of the Incarnation, into Epiphany. Now, Epiphany is the manifestation of the light of Christ to the Gentiles. I like to say it every year, and you've heard me say it before, perhaps, but it is not surprising that Jesus came for his chosen people, Israel. That is not surprising. What's amazing is, at the very beginning, that the Father cared enough about the Gentiles, the Dutch the Chinese, the Swedes, the Italians, all, you know, all these different people. All, he cared enough about us that in the Magi, in the wise men, uh, he revealed the kingship and the lordship of Jesus at the very beginning. So what's, it's just so amazing that we get to be a part of the story. Again, we're not surprised uh, that, that Jesus comes for the Jews and that he's coming back and that the Jews at the end of the age, their eyes are going to be opened and they're going to worship in mass uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. What a day. And we need to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem and for the day in which our Jewish uh, brothers and sisters are opened up and, and their hearts receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a day uh, that's coming. Uh, so uh, right now, uh, this next week, I'm going to be in North Africa where Muslims are begging us to come to cast out demons and to heal the sick. Can you imagine? I'm going to fly into the Sahara Desert. I mean, you just can't believe where we're going to be. Ken and I are going. And uh, the things that we're going to do, um, but a time in which our Arab brothers and sisters and our Muslim brothers are starting. I say not, they're not our brothers and sisters in Christ yet, but they're our brothers and sisters in that we are created by the same God. And God is doing something across the earth where he's waking up Hindus and Muslims and people uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit to the gospel. One day it's coming for our Jewish brothers and sisters, too. And uh, what an amazing thing. I, I don't know what God's going to do. Uh, if you remember my first trip to Chad, uh, we recorded 78 confirmed miracles. That was the missionary report. He had confirmed after the visit, he went back and found at least 78 different people. It's been a written report uh, that was given to, uh, to the mission office of, of 78 people who are miraculously healed. Uh, I have expectations that it's going to be bigger and greater. This will be our third trip, and we're expecting for bigger and greater things. But it's a very hard trip. I, I don't mind telling you. I, I actually, I was trying to dodge this trip, by the way. And I say that because it's not a trip. I mean, the people are great, but remember, it's 105 in the winter over there. We're in the winter, but it's 105 degrees. And as you know, I'm kind of like a can of Crisco. And so the idea of going over there and melting... Uh, it's just, it's not really exciting. Uh, uh, but I will tell you, the Muslims there say, this is what the couple of them said to me in a group, said, uh, we know that you have a better, this is what they said about American Christians. They said, we know you have a better life in the United States. But thank you for coming. He said, they said, this guy was a leader. He said, you're the only people who come over here and have built hospitals and schools for the last hundred years. We know you have a better life, but you come here and you serve us. That's the response uh, that we get there. Uh, it's a Muslim country. Uh, it's not under sh Sharia law, but it is a Muslim country. And uh, 
You know, there's people that have served there uh, in most of these Muslim countries for over 100 years before they really saw more than one or two converts. But we're living in a day in which the Holy Spirit is at work uh, and people are responding uh, to the light of the gospel uh, that was open to the Gentiles uh, at the birth of Christ. What an incredible thing. So this is Epiphany, and it marks this season. And so in the Epiphany season, the study of the lessons for the next several weeks are about his humanity and then his divinity. And then we move into Lent uh, as we uh, focus. But this next season of Epiphany Tide is the focus of, the lessons are about the, what it looks like to have a human being fully alive uh, and what that life uh, and what that teaching and what the power, what all that's about. And that's this next season. I love the Epiphany season uh, it's a powerful season uh, for us because we see Jesus as an example, as the one who was fully alive, whose humanity completely consecrated, set apart to God. And we see the way he lived his life and it spurs us on to see what we're not and then to ask God in forgiveness that we could become by the power of the Spirit more and more like Jesus. And uh, anyway, what a great season it is. Now, I, I want to remind you because there's a lot of context and a lot of history this morning. So first, I want to remind you about who Herod the Great was. And Herod the Great was an Idiomenian chief. All right, what does that mean? From Edom, so it starts with an I, Idiomenian, but, but he was a, from the tribe of Edom, or Esau. So he was a descendant all the way back, the people that came all the way back to Esau. And uh, they were largely at enmity or fighting with the Jews. Uh, throughout history, but in a sense, because of Esau and Jacob, they were relatives. Now, under the Maccabean revolt, which happened between the last book of the Bible, Malachi, there was a 400-year intertestamental period. During that period, you had the Maccabean revolt, all right? And in that time, for a short period of time, like maybe a year and a half, the Jews had their freedom from the Greeks and the Romans, and so they were free for this period. And uh, under the third son of seven son family, Judas Maccabeus led this great uh, guerrilla warfare and, 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 and they were free uh, from the Seleucids, the Greek dynasty uh, that they had been under. Now, uh, so in this time, Herod the Great grew up and went to school. He was sent away to Rome to go to school. He went to school with the young boy who became Caesar Augustus. So they were kind of friends. He was not obviously this important. He was from the Edomite tribe. Uh, excuse me. And in the Maccabean revolt, the Jews who didn't like the Edomites, they're, they're, they're cousins of a sense, and what they did under their powers, they went and circumcised all the adult men. Can you imagine how exciting that was? And they said to them, they had under the power of death, I mean, they were, they were you know, bullying them in a sense. They said, oh, we're brothers and you're really Jews. You're really our brother, so we have to do this to you. But they did it to humiliate them and to shame them uh, and to cause them great pain, as you might imagine, those who understand the concept. So, this, so then, when Herod the Great grows up, he is given the right to be this provincial leader. They called him a king. He wasn't really a king in, in terms of he was certainly under Roman power and authority. Uh, but the Romans said, because the Jews complained, the Romans said, hey, what are you complaining about? Your brothers, the Edomites, you, made, you, you, know, you circumcised them, you know, and, and they're really Jews, remember? That's what you guys just said 100 years ago. So they used the history of what the Jews did to the Edomites in the Maccabean revival. They used that against, and that's why they put Herod 
to be the king of the Jews. All right, now, in this story this morning, you can imagine that, of course, the Jews never liked Herod, and he was a very uh, evil person. When he became the king of the Jews, he took the Sanhedrin, which is the 70 religious leaders representing the, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the Jews, he took the Sanhedrin and he killed maybe half of them, maybe more. So Josephus tells us that he killed the strongest and the best leaders of the top spiritual leaders on the council of the Sanhedrin. All right, so you can imagine they were not excited to ever disagree with him, right? They learned a lesson when Herod's around, you better be quiet and you better behave. Because that was his first thing he did was he slaughtered uh, a large number of people from the Sanhedrin. All right, now, he would then also, so he was hated by the Jews, though he was called king of the Jews. All right, so you can imagine how worried he was when he was getting a message that someone who was born king of the Jews had come into existence because he knew he was an imposter and he was a fraud. Right? So this caused him, as the text is going to tell, tell, tell us, he was troubled, meaning he was shaken to the core like an earthquake. Uh, he knew something was going on and it wasn't good. All right, now, one other thing is, and I think it's going to be up on the screen in a second. It's a long thing. Keep going. Click. That, we're going to go back to that. That's the reading. Keep there. All right, so here's a quote I want to read you about the star. All right, there are many ideas. Some people think it was Halley's Comet. Remember that the dates of Jesus' birth aren't right. We're almost certain he was born four to seven years before the calendar says. But remember, the calendar was done in medieval Europe, about 1100 or something. So it's not like, but, so the Europeans misunderstood the timing. That's not, you know, that's not so real surprising. They were amazingly close considering. All right, now, Halley's Comet had come before that time. This uh, Two of the planets coming together were at that time. And there's other things that, that uh, astronomers disagree with about what it might be. But the, probably the dominant position or view of what the star was is the one I'm going to read to you this morning. It's a quote. I'm going to read it. You get to follow along if your eyes are good enough. Interestingly enough, there was a strong rumor around the first century. I think this is Michael Green. Yes, it is. Uh, who, who died last February, by the way, but a great evangelical leader of the Anglican Church. Interestingly enough, there was a strong rumor around in the first century AD that world dominion would come out of Judea. Can you imagine that the Holy Spirit moved in such a way that the Greeks believed, the Romans believed, the pagans believed, and the Jews believed that somehow God was moving and that the king of the whole world was coming out of Judea? People who didn't know God, there was a root meaning, there was a sense in this, the Spirit was moving, and so in some way, this idea was floating, and we're going to look at some of the sources uh, that we have. Tacitus tells us that in the 60s of the first century, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time, the East was to grow powerful, and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. The same conviction was written up in, by the Jewish historian Josephus and the Roman historian Suetonius. Vespasian, now Vespasian was the one who in A.D. 67 was there to destroy Jerusalem. Caesar Augustus died. He was called back. He used this rumor that the leader of the world was coming from Judea and said, it's me. I was there, and now I'm back. And that's part of the thing he used to be anointed, as it were, or made the next Caesar. All right? That's what Vespasian, he used this very rumor as part of an explanation of why it should be him 
and not somebody else replacing Caesar Augustus. All right. Vespasian was the Roman general making war in Judea in the late 60s before becoming the emperor, so he had good reason to be worried by rumors of this sort before taking them over and using them in his own propaganda. There would therefore be nothing surprising if the Magi inferred impending political changes from the star they saw. That was a perfectly natural expectation in the pagan world. Moreover, a star formed part of the Jewish messianic expectation. The famous prophecy of Balaam, which is in Numbers 24. I believe this is verse 6, but it's Numbers chapter 24. I see him, this is what Balaam said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. This was a very dear passage to Jewish hearts. And this, again, was one of the messianic proof texts found in Qumran. People mused on such verses. I mean, they longed for them. They re, you know, you remember the good prophecies, right? You remember, they remembered them. Someone, one commentator said, they remembered them like you do the songs that go with TV shows. You know, if we sang this morning and everybody knows your name, you'd know the TV show. That, that's how the, the people, they, they thought of these verses rung in their hearts and minds the way songs do, and we associate songs with movies or with different things. That it was just something that would be right in their memory, in their conscious memory, thinking about it. People mused on such verses and drew encouragement from them. So both Jewish and Gentile worlds were predisposed towards seeing in the stars an indication of what they might expect. Now, by the way, when Julius Caesar died in B.C. 32 or 34, when he died, a nova, and apparently a nova is a birth, some of you know this, but I'm not a science guy, but uh, uh, a nova is the birth of a star. So while the, in the nighttime, as his body was burning on the pyre, right, they saw a nova in the sky, and they said, ah, that's proof that Julius Caesar has joined the Pantheon, all right? And so even in, the, in this period of history, the idea of the star and the rulers was even more pronounced, even in other seasons, all right, now we're getting to the point of this whole thing. Here we go. But what did the Magi see? The most probable suggestion is that not one new star so much, that it was not one new star so much as it was the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the area of the sky known as Pisces. I have no idea where that is, but I just know it's up there. Some of you are astronomers know. This happened three times in the year 7 BC, it was seen on May 29th, the 3rd of October, and the 4th of December in that year. By the way, Michael Green does not add, but in, in this next year, our 6 BC, the uh, Mars joined those two. So it was even brighter. There was a moment in the next year that not only the two planets, but the third, Mars, came, and apparently in the sky, it was dominating, and it looked like one big star, not three different planets. All right, so anyway, a cuneiform inscription from the observatory of Sippur in Babylonia gives us this fascinating information. The, the same conjunction took place in Kepler's day and highly impressed him. If this, is an, if this is in fact, we're not sure, but we think so. If this is in fact what arrested the attention of the stargazing magi, it is not difficult to see how they would have interpreted it. Pisces was reckoned by astronomers to mark the end of the sun's old course and the beginning of the new. Old, new, you know, new year, old year, right? New, turn, new season, old season. Jupiter was the royal planet, and Saturn had long been the symbol of Israel. 
So this conjunction of planets, giving the impression, because they were together, it looked just like one bright thing, the impression of one very bright star would have meant to the competent astronomer that a new age was beginning in which the sovereignty of the world would shift to Judea. I hear the hallelujah chorus in my heart. Jerusalem was the capital city of Judea. And it is natural that the Magi would have gone there first. They would have set out after the first conjunction of the planets. They would have had to prepare and get money and all the things together. But, but at the first conjunction of the planets... And the third would have occurred while they were in Bethlehem, according to this particular theory. It seemed to be almost overheard, and in overhead, excuse me. It seemed to be almost overhead and indicate to them that the end of their search was at hand. All right, now that's a lot of background information. But to me, if you don't have that information, it's a little bit hard to follow the story. So let's now turn back, if you would go back. Yes, now... Matthew is answering some very difficult questions. The church was exploding with Gentile converts as Matthew writes his gospel. But there were some problems also that the Jewish believers and were criticizing, the Jews were criticizing of Jesus, uh, partly because they said he's a Nazarite and the Messiah has to be from Judea and he also has to be born in Bethlehem. But Jesus was, of course, known to be a Nazarite. So part of what Matthew is doing in his opening here is he is making sure that his Jewish readers recognize and remember that though he was known as a Nazarite and he grew up in Nazareth, he was, in fact, from the tribe of Judah and he was born in Bethlehem. So imagine, look how Mark and Luke tell the whole story of Mary and their trip and the inn and all that. In Matthew, it's very brief. It says, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Think of all the rest of the story in Luke and Mark that we know. That wasn't as important to Matthew in terms of that he was answering the critics of his day. And he's responding to them with the truth about who Jesus is uh, and what's happening here. So, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, the Magi can mean different things. There was a tribe of priests in Persia. They were pagans. We might call them occultic or new age, uh, but they were people who studied the stars. They were astronomers and astrologers, uh, and they were certainly not people who were uh, on the path of the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament. They weren't those people. Mo that's what most people think these people were. We do not believe they're Jews. Some people speculate that these magi were from the ten lost tribes uh, of Israel. We don't believe that because Matthew used the expression that they come to see the king of the Jews. When Jews talk about it, they talk about the king of Israel. So in Matthew's writings, he uses a certain phrase when Jews are talking and a different phrase. Someone's got to give me a little bit of water. I'm so sorry. My voice was just fine until Larry breathed on me. Then I was, then now. <laughs> I don't know what happened. He's sitting with the hand. You're so neat and proper, my goodness. You look like you're in love back there. Sorry about that. It doesn't bother me as much as I know it bothers the rest of you. All right. Where was I? Okay, so the Magi, there's this group of people, uh, mystics of a sort, from Persia. 
The other theory is that the ten lost tribes, we do not believe. The way that Matthew says the phrase, they do not appear to be Jews, even estranged Jews. Now, now the ten tribe people may have informed the people in Persia of the idea of the Messiah. We, we don't know of the inner interaction. But we do not believe these people were Jewish, uh, that, that they were that way. Also, though, magicians and fakes and frauds, I mean, people who did superstitious things that were fakes, they're also used with this word. So we're not sure. Were these the people from Persia? Were they that people where well, this word could be used generically to mean people who are mystics? Uh, it could mean uh, people who are frauds. Whatever. But in the context, we think it was either people from Persia, uh, because these people seem to be sincere at least, or they were people who were mystics and wise, uh, in a sense, magi. This idea of, uh, of, of wise people from someplace if it wasn't Persia. But we, they're not just magicians like the occult people that come up in Acts, uh, or well, some of the fraudsters that come up in Acts. Eliasium, whatever, E-L-Y-S-A-I-M. That guy is talked about, used the same expression. Uh, but it's kind of like Coca-Cola is something specific. But we might say, I want Coke, meaning we want any sort of soda, you know, or we want pop or whatever. So, so the word Coke is both specific, but it's used generically. All right, as well. So that's what this Magi, uh, if it was specific, it means the people in Persia. If it's used generically, it means these mystics who were not uh, completely dialed into God, but who God revealed himself to. This is the good news, that people who were not worshiping the true God, God interacted with them in the way they could understand and led them to Jesus. Now, not to get to the punchline, but let's say it like this in the very beginning, then you can go to sleep. Ready? There is only one way to the Father. What is the one way to the Father? Jesus. But there are many ways to Jesus. Man, there's people waking up in dreams and visions, Hindus and Muslims. and All, all kinds of things happen. Some of us, we got saved because we were going through a financial diverse, reversal or a divorce or an affair. Some of us, we got saved because of grandmothers and mothers and fathers and Sunday schools. There's all kinds of ways to get us to Jesus. But there's only one way to the Father, and that's Jesus. But imagine a God who would take and interact with people in a way in which they understood in their false religions and intervene in their understanding in such a way to lead them to the information that is vital and critical, namely that Jesus, the King of the Jews, has been born. Many, many ways to Jesus. Only one way to the Father. But isn't it amazing how good God is that he would open up the hearts of people all over the world and prepare them for the message of the gospel, just like he did in this story. And this is, of course, our story. We share in it this morning. It's a big feast because most of us, we have a few Messianic Jews here, but most of us were Gentile believers, and we are included in type in the story of the Magi. So they came saying, verse 2, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And again, that expression is only in the lips of Gentiles. When, when Jews talk, they say, where is he who was born king of Israel? Okay, that's how we know these were Gentiles. That may not look like much, but it's a technical expression. And so we know it's not Jews who are speaking. For we have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Now, isn't this funny? How many people today interact with Jesus and the gospel, but they don't come to worship? The only reasonable response to the one who was born king of the Jews, the Lord Jesus Christ, is to worship. Do you know what the word worship means? It means to ascribe value and honor. So this word is used here in a word that is not adoration. There's, one, there's five different words for worship in the Bible, uh, but there's one that's used exclusively for deity, adoration, all right, in English. 
in this case, it's worship. They don't understand the, the whole doctrine of everything, but they come to worship, meaning in the revelation of this king that's coming, we know that it means that we must ascribe value and honor to that person. And so they come. They don't know where the trip's going to lead them. Can you imagine getting up and taking money, knowing that you're going to, you know, you know, people know that you're traveling, you got money, you makes you vulnerable, uh, all, all kind of different things, not knowing where you're going to end up, uh, going on a trip, but knowing that with the revelation comes the responsibility to follow and to pursue. Do you know that you've got that responsibility? Do you know there's, day, there's people today, we're going to see it in the story, who have all kinds of information and knowledge of the Bible, and yet when the Holy Spirit's working, when God is moving, they sit home, and instead of moving and finding out, they say, well, if God wants to move, he can come here. What if the wise men had stayed in Persia, wherever they were from? Do you know that you can miss it? Do you know that moves can happen, revivals can happen, things, that you are responsible for the revelation to pursue? The most important thing that I want in my son and daughter is that there are people who orient, and for each of you, is that there are people who orient their heart, their decisions, their relationships, their future, their jobs, everything that make it oriented in light of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's got to be the reference point for everything. We must pursue him in everything. When we're having tough times in our marriage, uh, when we disagree, when it's time to repent, when it's time to forget, I, I mean, there's no choice. Do you know how many times in the last 30 years Susie would have loved, if she weren't a good Christian, she would have loved to divorce me. I can assure you. I can speak for her this morning. Many, many times. But she oriented her life in hope in her faith in Jesus, even as I did. If there's one thing over the last 30 years that we did right, it would be we really did care to orient ourselves to Jesus. Incredibly, if you knew all the crazy things I've done and thought and how difficult, I, you, you'd be like, oh, I can't believe it. I hear Jackie at times, she says, but God. But God. But God was so good. He's so gracious. And when he is the star, the place of orientation for my life, and I'm pursuing him, Everything that I need, all the forgiveness, all the grace, all the help, it comes. Though pagans knew it, that it was reserved for this one that they had the revelation of to pursue on whatever route. Can you imagine not knowing the route? Don't know where you're going? I mean, I'm so thankful for GPSs. <laughs> I love them. I don't always trust them to my harm. Because I've really been, a couple times I didn't trust him and got me in trouble. But anyway, I, I mean, I can't imagine. Just get up and go. And yet that's, in a sense, what we do in the Christian life. we got to get up and go. And we're never sure that the next step's there unless God is good, unless he's faithful. If he's everything, the Bible says, and everything he showed us in the past, then we're going to be okay. But life is always challenging us to force us to step out and stretch our faith another day. Another day, and yet God is so faithful. That's what gives me hope to think 30 years, I feel like that sounds like forever, but then 50 years. So I say, oh, there's people I know and love. They've done it day after day. Difficulties. And then, of course, there's wonderful days, but you remember the 5%. The 5% you remember, but you're so grateful to the God. Really, He got us through. The wise men understood the response. Revelation has responsibility. Remember that. 
Do you know that if you see someone healed, if you see God move and someone, you are responsible to respond in kind, even if it's not your miracle. When God reveals himself, we are required, it is our obligation to respond to him because he has revealed to us his goodness, even if it was the other person. We see, ah, oh, there's the power, there's God's love, and we're to praise and to honor him and to worship him. The pagans got it. It's so sad. In our story this morning, the educated teachers of the law and the scribes, they didn't get it. But you know, our churches are full with people who they hear about the Spirit, they hear about the things of God, but they do not understand it is incumbent not simply to hear, but to obey. That's how you know the real Christian, by the way. Not by what they know intellectually. Our level of obedience is the thermometer of our maturity. Remember that. Our obedience reflects. Okay? It reflects our real maturity. Not what, listen, don't pay any attention to people who say they're Christian if they don't look like Jesus. If I told you this morning I'm skinny, I'm skinny. Don't make me skinny. People who say that if they don't look like Jesus, don't, I'm so confused. There's all these people. No. If they look like Jesus, if they smell like Jesus, if they act like, then. If they're unforgiving, if they're proud, then we got to say, hmm. Okay, and if they don't teach or do the things that you, we got to be really suspicious, right? We, Christian means little Christ, okay? Little Christ. That's what we're looking for. Who is he that has been born king of Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and, and we've come to worship him. We couldn't do anything else. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, shaken to the core, and all Jerusalem with him. Hey, he killed the Sanhedrin not before. Now he's upset. Who knows what's going to happen? And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written, Micah 5, 2, I believe, by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Do you know that the teachers of the law, we got plenty, they had no interest in going five miles away when people had come from across the world to find Jesus. They knew the story, they knew the verses, they quoted it correctly, but at the end of the day, they were not interested in obeying that one. So they stayed home in Jerusalem and they missed the glory of the coming and the birth of Jesus. We're seeing the same thing today in the Christian church. When God is moving and transforming people and a whole bunch of the church says, that's what it says in the Bible, but I don't believe it. I'm not opening it for it today. They're sitting in Jerusalem with all the head knowledge. No intention to obey and to submit their lives and follow Jesus. It's a costly following, no doubt. It's a crucifixion, no doubt. But the ones who really love him, they, they get it. It's not what I want, it's what God wants that's going to matter. Then Herod, when he secretly called the wise men, he determined from them what time the star appeared. This is, remember, Joseph and Mary, when they get there, they're now in a house, so not long longer in the manger. Probably, some people think as much as two or three years passed as they traveled all that way. So, he's, so Herod wants to know the timing so he can kill the babies, which is in the section right after this in Matthew. We're not getting into that this morning. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully 
for the young child. And when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. There's a whole lot of people that the spirit of murder and religiosity is stronger than the spirit of true worship. Listen, Herod had no, no interest in worshiping Jesus, of course. He's a liar, and he wanted to kill him. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the wise men did. Behold, the star which they'd seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Can you imagine? To know that the heavens are declaring the wonders of God and you get to be there for it. And when they'd come into the house, again, not the manger, not the inn, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped. You know, the most appropriate response this morning to your God and Savior is to fall down and worship him. You know, if some people start falling down, we'd be like, oh, you think you need an ambulance. Listen, uh, the compelling goodness of God requires from us at every level a response of worship. I really don't care if some people stand and lift up their hands. I don't care if you sit, if you kneel, but I tell you, these people show us the freshness of what it means to encounter the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we need to be people who worship and respond uh, in a wholehearted way, even as they did. So uh, they worshiped him, they fell down and worshiped him, and when they opened their treasures, they wouldn't think of coming to the king without treasure. Listen, the treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh are fantastic, but they are a reflection of a heart that wanted to worship. I, I mean, our money is a reflection of our worship, but it's only symbolic. It's not less than money. Your money in your pocketbook tells you what you value. All right. I mean, we had people in the church, I remember years ago, uh, they were complaining about the church asking for money, and the church didn't ask for money because I was the preacher. I never talked about money. They told me how much they spent a year on Disney passes. They spent more money on Disney passes than they gave to the church. That told you what their value is, right? I might be tempted to spend more on food. I mean, I'm not trying to be you know, great. I'm just telling you, our pocketbook, your checkbook, whatever, it tells you what's valuable. Our treasures, though, are more than, it is not less than our money, but it is far more. It is an openness to fall God and to be his hands and his feet and to serve him uh, with all of our being. That's what Jesus wants. It's not, it's, not, it's not less than money, but it's a whole lot more. Gold, you know, some the scholars, it's so funny, you read 10 scholars, half of them say it makes no difference what these things were. Other people say it makes a lot of difference. Gold was given to king, frankincense was given to priests, and myrrh was given for the dead, to wrap the dead. So some people say that in the very gifts himself is unfolding his life as king, as high priest, and sacrifice, and his death that's coming on the cross. I'm not sure. I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, it certainly uh, is beautiful in either case. Uh, it, were the, it was the things that were worthy of a coming king. Then they were divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, and they departed for their own country. Now let me say this. If they had not been obedient to follow the star at the beginning of the story, they would have not heard the Holy Spirit direct them the dream to protect them from Herod. The only way you can make sure that you hear God's voice tomorrow is to obey him for what he's telling you today. If you don't do the little things today, you won't hear him on the big things tomorrow. I have people come to me and say, oh, how do I make sure I don't want to miss? Listen, the way you don't miss God on your future, your spouse, your, 
your, you know, your business, your, the way you don't miss God there is to make sure you're doing the things that you know to do. If you do the things you know to do, you will not miss the things you don't know. People who honor God in the things they know, God will honor with revelation for what they don't know. He will give you the desires of your heart. He will embed within you a desire that corresponds with the blessings and the good things he wants to bring to you. The key is, is to do all the little things. Do the things you know. Repent of the things you know. Do the good things that he's revealed to you. If you do those things, the rest of it will come into place in the most wonderful uh, and glorious way. He will surprise us. Uh, life has been so much better than I could have hoped all those years ago. I could have never hoped for the good things that I've experienced in Christ. And, and, and now, of course, my expectations have been raised. And I'm looking forward to the next 30, 40 years of fruitfulness that we have not seen up to this point. Because I've seen the, at 53, I can look back and see his faithfulness and say, wow, uh, how good he is. And then I can look into the future and hope and say, wow, I have every reason to hope and to believe he will continue to be faithful because he's been so faithful to me in the past. Listen, whatever route it takes you, Blackaby says, it, God doesn't give you, Southern Baptist, I love that guy, he says, God doesn't give you a roadmap. He gives you the next step. Whatever route he has revealed you, take the next step. He will give you the next step. Whatever route, okay, go. And then give him all your treasures. Give him all your dreams, all your desires, all your hopes, all your ambitions. Give him your time, your talent. Surrender it all and, and, and see what he gives back to you. You release it all to Jesus and see what he releases back to you. You can trust him with your future. You can trust him with your dreams. You can trust him with your finances. You can trust him in your marriage and with your children. But you have to release them. They fell and they worshiped Jesus. And they ascribed to him the place of, of honor and dignity that he deserved. And in so doing, their hearts became more calibrated. And then they were protected for the day to come. And we don't know the rest of their story, but surely people that heard the star enough and followed with an obedience to find Jesus the way they did, and left being protected, they continued on, just like we need to do. Okay? There's no, we did that for 10 years, now that's over, now I get to coast. No, in this life, we got to follow him. It's a costly following, but it's a wonderful following. Follow the star of revelation. Be led by the Spirit of God. Seek him. Uh, when you hear God moving, don't be passive. I'm telling you, what, if revival broke out in Brazil, I'd be flying to Brazil. It's precious things when God shows up. He shows up often in Bethlehem, and often he's not in Jerusalem. Don't believe the lie that people have said in other revivals. Oh, if God wanted to move, he'd move here. Listen, when God is moving, honor the movement. Okay? You're expect if the wise men were expected to figure that out, you and I are expected to figure that out. Now, Lord Jesus, we love you. How good you are that you would reveal yourself to people that we think of as absolute pagans and occultic practitioners, but you love them enough to reveal at your birth your coming. And in revealing to them, Lord, you showed us your concern and the inclusion of us Gentiles. Oh, Lord, we bless your chosen people, the Jews. And we're so grateful for the way you've kept your word to them. But, Lord, we're grateful that you would even remind us that you were also thinking of us in your coming. 
Now, Lord, help us to be stewards, Lord, that whatever route this world would take us in the leading and being led by your Spirit, that as we obey you and seek you and pursue you, you're a God who wants to be found. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you soften our hearts? Lord, would we respond to you in worship with all of those things, all the counts and the scorekeeping that we have in relationships? And Lord, we release all that stuff. We ask you, Lord, make us new. Make us new. Lord, you've inspired us to see Don and Didi with 50 years. Lord, would you help us? Help them, Lord. They knew all the good and the bad, but, but Lord, your grace, we see only the good. Now, Lord, we pray, would you encourage and strengthen us along the way? We want to be faithful. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord. Uh, thank you for the good examples. Thank you for the wise men. Lord, that we'd be known as wise uh, because we would orient our lives toward you. Oh, bless your people this morning. We pray as we go into this year for fresh anointing, fresh revelation. Help us to be faithful, because if we're faithful to respond in obedience, we'll get more and more. We want this church to be a place of revelation. So help us to be an obedient people who truly worship you. We ask this, and we thank you, Lord, for your grace. And we bless you, Lord, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.